Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this film. Mic check. Everyone good? Is Mike here? I'm here. All right, mic check complete. This is episode two. We're here today with movie number 249, Touch of Evil. But before we start, let's introduce our team. First up, we have Shane. Hello. I'm Shane, and uh, my qualifications are as such. I drink IPAs, but I do not know what IPA stands for. We have June. Hello. My name's June. My only hobby is helping move Mike's furniture. Uh, I'm Jack. I once went into a movie theater, so I'm kind of an expert. And lastly, we've got Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm, hi, I'm Mike. I've been uh, podcasting for 10 years, mostly to myself, and uh, just recently started recording for others. And uh, big news, I have a doctor's appointment to get my teeth checked out in uh, 22 days. And uh, we are we are happy for you, Mike. That's big progress for you. That's great news. Five years. Yeah, yeah, it is five. <laughs> All right, now let's let's. <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, okay. Let's... <laughs> All right, now let's uh, let's let's talk about the movie a little bit. Uh, like we said, we're talking about. Uh, 1958's Touch of Evil, um, directed by a guy named Orson Welles. Again, we're at the bottom of the list, kind of some of the bottom feeder directors, one-and-done kind of guys. Uh, also starring Orson Welles. Again, it's kind of, a, kind of a, a crime film, kind of a drama. Before we dive deep into the discussion, Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about what happens in this movie? Take us through the beginning. Sure. So this is a self-proclaimed film noir, uh, almost the last of its era, which is the classical era of film noir, which is 50s. It's 58. This movie came out, as you mentioned in the intro. Um, this has to do with a, a very uh, prudent standoff between the American and Mexican governments of its time. We have uh, Vargas, who is the main character, uh, played by um, Charles Charlton Heston, of course. And he is uh, involved with a bombing of a U.S. citizen who just crossed over the Mexican border going back to the United States from Mexico. Uh, so the film takes off with him and his newly married wife, who is an American, uh, having to play out this American government, Mexican government, uh, back and forth, crime, uh, victim, kind of a, a, a what, what would you call it? A, it's an investigation to see what's going on. Really, the underlying tones of this movie have to be Blaming other countries for uh, minority mistakes between the two of them. We have the American government with their detectives coming in and trying to get jurisdiction while we have the Mexican government playing back and forth to discover who the killer was of the situation. Very dramatic, very ahead of its time, honestly, for the 1950s. Um, really modern day kind of scenarios going on here. So that's how we started out. If you want to lead us in. Yeah, uh, great summary, Mike. Um... Definitely, definitely kind of a whodunit, definitely kind of a, a crime. And there's that real standoff between um, Vargas, like you mentioned, and the uh, detective uh, in the American side of the border town who Orson Welles plays. 
And let me say, he's looking pretty rough in 1958. Let's see. Let's let's dive into this. Chan, do you want to do you want to kind of give us your thoughts on how this movie sets up and plays out from the start? Yeah, well, so it's it starts out pretty cool with the the opening shot where it's like all kind of one shot. The camera's moving around, you're watching, but like they pass it through as it goes over the street and it's totally not on a wire as the camera bounces around as it's on the wire. But so that I digress. The most important part I had was so they're walking down the street and the car blows up and she proceeds to ask the most obvious questions like was that a exploding car? And he goes, well, I'll have to go look. Like, it's like the most blatant question and answering. And then he proceeds to say, I forgot what it was, but it was like, someone's like, what are you doing here, Vargas? Because everyone knows him. And he says, I need to get my wife a chocolate soda. And I just want to bring it to the panel here. What What is a chocolate soda? And what company makes chocolate soda? They walk in, she asks for a chocolate soda but we never actually get a chocolate soda. There, there was confirmed no payoff on the chocolate soda. Well, so, I mean, the chocolate soda is like the Maltese Falcon, right? It just drives the plot. Is a Maltese Falcon also a drink? You're thinking of the, the, you're thinking of the Falcon Malt, all right? That's a drink. Which is chocolate, right? Oh, Malted Falcon. Oh, Malted Falcon, okay. Anyway, yeah, no, it's uh, definitely had that question myself. I don't know what the hell a chocolate soda is. Um, I'm kind of picturing like Ovaltine and Coke. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing I, I definitely want to call out here is uh, so we come in through that that great intro scene. We watch a burning car kind of drive in and explode. And the other thing I want to point out is the firefighters were there fucking instantly. Everyone was there to include the governor of Texas or whatever state. The DEA, everyone is there within five seconds of this explosion and they are all totally okay with it. There's like, ah, you know, just another car exploding. Yeah. I have to imagine that happens a lot in this town. The other thing I just want to mention real quick is based on those fire trucks coming in, the suspension of cars was not quite there yet in the fifties. Those things were fucking bounce houses. (laughs) All right. So having, having settled the question of chocolate soda, June, do you want to kind of take us through what you saw? in this intro the biggest thing is obviously the uh the cinematography uh, i mean this was this is a pretty iconic uh long uh single take uh long shot the i mean that was that was pretty good you know for the time that was i think it was a little more popular back then and uh everything kind of either you know nods back to this but uh that was like what three minutes of a continuous take um, don't, don't say it's definitely more impressive back then. Back then, you didn't have the ability to CGI or quick cut, you know, edit. You had you had film. You had actual film. You had to cut if something went wrong. And it, being able to do a three minute shot without cutting film, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah and especially filming at night. From what I understand, that probably I mean, that probably took a, a lot of takes. But uh, yeah. it was pretty good. There was another even longer continuous shot uh, later on. It was like twelve minutes long. Um, really, I did not notice that. Yeah, so it's it's I I like that one because it's not overt. Like the opening was obviously like, oh, look what I can do! I can do this, yeah. you know, single take. Look at my filmmaking ability. But the second one, it's while they're in uh, kind of near the beginning, and I don't know they're talking to like lawyers or some something, something like that. But that was like a twelve minute continuous shot. It's uh, that was 
You're talking about the investigation of Sanchez. Yes. Yeah, it was in Sanchez's uh, mm. house. Yep. Yeah, that's, I didn't notice that. That's uh, yeah, and that's the cool part is it's not like shoving it down your throat with this like this is a filming technique, like you know. Yeah, for sure. Cinematography overall uh, was awesome. Well, you kind of kind of have to expect that from Orson Welles. I think it's because he didn't want to move. So he just said, just keep the camera rolling. I'm not getting up and doing that again. Orson Welles does one take only. He's definitely not shy about writing in a, a paragraph about how he's overweight. He even had the mistress in the movie call him out on being a fat guy. The, the candy boss. Um, yeah, I got to say, uh, in comparison to last week's movie, The Killing, this definitely feels a lot tighter, a lot more um, artistic, a lot more intentional in a lot of ways. It's definitely at least was intended to be kind of elevated. And I think the cinematography kind of reflects that. Yeah, I was 100% going into this thinking it was going to be Citizen Kane and just, you know, dreading it. But uh, no, it caught it caught your uh, attention pretty quick and then uh, kind of rolled with it. And uh, Mike, I, uh, I kind of blacked out while you were talking as i usually do can you what what part of the plot do we get to with your recap so we only got through just the, the beginning introduction um really just went up to the point where the car exploded which is the first as you said three minutes of the film uh i'll go into a little bit more of that we'll, we'll give a little bit more of a hashed out scenario about to the midpoint of the movie um if you would if you want me to do that sure yeah mike let's uh let's let's carry us forward a little bit tell us about what happens so essentially, after we have this explosion, and it really sets the ground for the plot of this movie being an investigation between the American and Mexican government, um, what ends up taking place is a back and forth uh, across the border with Vargas's wife, who really is, is a powerful woman, which was very iconic to the film noir back in the day. Uh, so she is Vargas's wife. She's an American citizen, and Vargas is trying to protect her at the same time, investigate uh, this death of a, an American who came from Mexico, while the American government is sending um, uh, their own guy, Hank Quillen, who's Orson Welles, and he's a uh, longtime detective, kind of a uh, older guy, fat guy. He's he's definitely at the end of his rope, kind of a detective, but you know, apparently is idolized by the Americans. Uh, so what ends up happening is this back and forth between the Mexican border and the American border of Vargas having jurisdiction in Mexico and Hank having jurisdiction in America. And they're kind of going back and forth uh, investigating this death. Now, Vargas has been following this gang in Mexico, and they're out to get Vargas. And they're going after Vargas's wife in order to slow Vargas down. So Vargas is kind of following this new murder, while at the same time, he has this other side story going on. Hank and Vargas are definitely not in line with each other. They're definitely opposed. We got Hank. He's, he's definitely a bigot. He definitely does not like the Mexican people and expresses it you know, very fluidly throughout the movie. But to get us to a point where we can discuss, we get to an iconic scene where they find their first suspect, who's named Sanchez, um, who happens to actually be the secret husband of the daughter of the murdered American who blew up in the car which I didn't catch the first time I watched it. And Hank blames him and accuses him of this murder and uh, actually plants some evidence in his house to uh, get him stuck with this, with this murder with dynamite. And Vargas discovers that he was, uh, he's planting evidence. Hank is planting evidence by, he brushed up against a box, which fell over in the bathroom. And then later, like a couple minutes later, 
there's suddenly dynamite sticks in this box that Vargas had knocked over. And Hank claims that they didn't plant any evidence. Now Vargas knows Hank's a corrupt cop, probably has been corrupt for a long time. And that's where it kind of kicks off the second half of this movie of Vargas looking into Hank and claiming that he's a, he's a crooked and dirty cop. Yeah, definitely the main conflict of the movie there. In fact, kind of a, a couple conflicts you set up there. There's Grandy and Vargas and Vargas and Quinlan, uh, the, the dirty cop. Um, Jim, what do you think of this portion of the movie? So I just kind of want to, you know, we kind of introduced some of the characters here. I would just like to point out, it took me 42 minutes into the movie to realize that Charlton Heston was supposed to be Mexican. <laughs> right and that did you notice they did makeup on him so his eyes and teeth pop out like no other first of all it's a black and white film and they put like dark makeup on charlton heston <laughs> like what the fuck but he, he talks to everyone like buenos dias and honestly like you know he was just as dark after crawling through the desert in ben-hur <laughs> you know <laughs> Black and white movie, completely unnecessary. Well, I think I think Orson kind of landed on it when he made the comment. His character, Han- uh, you know, Hank makes a comment to uh, Vargas and says, "You don't talk like a Mexican." Like, all right, you're calling it out. We all know what's going on here. A little, little on the nose. I get it. Hollywood may have been different. I don't know, but like, can we like not find a Mexican actor? <laughs> and I, I'd like to point out too that. Mike's description there, very detailed, awesome. About 80% of what he said occurred next to the burning car five minutes after the car burned, <laughs> where the DA introduces who's going to investigate, where they make their first accusations, where they, everything occurs next to this crime scene that's just happened, and then they move on to their suspect. Yeah, so I, you know, I find it very interesting that we're focusing on the fact that uh, you know, Charleston Heston is definitely not a Mexican person being a white guy. And uh, this movie gave me the impression that they were trying to push the fact that racism and blaming a minority for a crime they didn't commit was very prevalent. It was really ahead of its time. And, you know, focusing on Charleston being uh, essentially black-faced really kind of denounces the fact that I think I think Orson Welles was trying to bring that to the light, you know, trying to bring that forward uh, in the 50s, which is you know, unheard of and from any of the other movies I've ever seen. Um, I do want to call out, like, it does feel like a lot of stuff is timeline compressed here. In The Killing, we had literal narrations of the time. Here, it was just, uh, in one place, accuse someone within the next five minutes, back to the hotel, accuse uh, Quinlan of uh, planning evidence, get his buddy, all his bosses show up in five minutes. This feels like it all happened in about one square mile. Did anyone else get that impression? Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what Shane's uh, kind of getting at. I guess um, by the end of it, though, I did feel like a lot had happened. So I think it kind of yeah. made up for itself. It kind of like sprints at the beginning, and then right once Vargas accuses Quinlan, that's when it starts to like kind of expand and take its time and explain what's happening. I feel like Wells just wanted to get there so that he cannot be on scene and have to sit and sweat so like they just sprinted to get there and then he had to go drink again to get drunk for the next scene i'd like to do a quick counterpoint to my own point about terrible makeup 
the makeup on Orson Welles was phenomenal. T- looked like a totally different person. That was super effective. True. I had to second guess. I was like, wait, is that him? I mean, I know Orson Welles, but I didn't know him well enough to. I just kind of triggered on he was fat and drunk. So I was like, that must be Orson Welles. <laughs> so playing, playing to character. Well, I think we kind of covered this pretty well. Mike, do you want to carry us a little further forward? Kind of take us up through the some of the real setting up of the, the finale and the action later in the movie? Actually, before, before we move on here, I have a thing that just bugged the shit out of me. This likens back to some of the things in the, in the movie The Killing, uh, where a character is just making asinine decisions. Uh, <laughs> Su- Susan, was that her name? The wife? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, in the beginning, you know, she's constantly kind of being put on the back burner by, you know, Charlton Heston's character. Yeah. Uh, while he's doing his job, she's kind of, you know, he kind of shoves her in an apartment and do whatever. But I mean, it, it is their honeymoon, so he is kind of a dick. Right. So, at the very beginning, she, as he gets into this investigation, she goes back to the the hotel or whatever. On her way, she gets confronted by people from the uh, the Grandy Crime Syndicate. Yeah, the nephews. Yeah, and uh, they're obviously being scumbags, and uh, she just blindly follows this sketchy dude that like confronted him with little to no, you know, pushback. Right? There was no threat or anything. She's just like, fine, Poncho. No, <laughs> if, if I remember right, she even says, what could go wrong? Then says, yeah. <laughs> don't answer that. So she knows it's a terrible idea. And then so, luckily, she goes, she goes back and meets uh, Uncle Joe Grandy. And there's like, uh, there's a threat in there, but then... She's almost like surprised that she's free to go. She like literally says like that's it, I'm free to go. So if you knew like expected something bad to happen, why the fuck did you go there in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> she's like vocalizing what the audience is thinking. Yeah, she has a real track record of knowing just how stupid what she's doing is and still doing it. That also brings me to a point that I forgot until June brought it up. The people sneaking in this film? <laughs> I I just, they're always, like, jumping in the middle of the street as they're sneaking. It's like watching a Scooby-Doo film. Like, well, yeah, well, what was that scene? So uh, Vargas rejoins the American cop crew, and someone sneaks up on him and throws, like, ten feet behind him through, like, a fairly well-lit street and, like, throws a bottle of something at him. Acid. Yeah, doesn't shoot at him. Throws acid. So... <laughs> Here's my issue with that. It was like, so put yourself in in uh, Mike's shoes, uh, Mike the character, not Mike the podcaster. Sure. Um, you are a high profile, uh, you know, cop in a volatile area, right? People know who you are. You know, you presumably put people behind bars. If you're walking through a street at night in the middle of an investigation and somebody tries to like zero dark 30 you by like whispering your name, <laughs> you know, he was like, Senor Vargas. And he just like, oh, wonder who wants my attention in the middle of the street and like walks around the corner to a <laughs> vat of acid or whatever. Like, <laughs> come on, man. I'm glad they used acid from all the marijuana they were cooking up. <laughs> yeah, I was... 
I was a little unclear on what that was because that looked kind of odd in black and white. Not that they had a you know option to film in color, but they threw it up against a poster. They say it later. Yeah, he explains it later. Yeah, I I kind of surmised, but for a while I was wondering like, is this like a weird fire effect that he threw like a Molotov cocktail at this guy? They just wanted to kill him. I don't know, man. And then the cherry on top of that scene was the other cop, like, runs up to him and is just like, oh, is everything okay, Mr. Vargas? It's like, yo, there's acid on the wall. (laughs) No, not everything's okay. Who was that? Oh, it's just some guy on the street. You know how the acid is around here. 1950s America-Mexican border, it's normal. No, if anyone tried to sneak, like the villains in our film, they would number one get hit by a car. But it's... They just, like, jump behind people, and it's supposed to be sneaking. And, like, I feel like they're trying to overact that they're sneaking when they could have just hid behind a pillar. They also follow about six inches away from the characters. All right, so let's, uh, let's just let Mike take us forward. Perfect jumping-off point. You've brought up some great lead-ups to what happens next in the movie. So going off of the acid throwing, uh, that actually is a part of the uh, Grande family uh which we have an uncle and the nephews and vargas has actually been investigating the brother he actually has put him away and there's a trial going on so the grande family's out for vargas so what ends up happening is grande knows that hank doesn't like vargas so they end up kind of teaming up together to take vargas down and that ends up leading to essentially a kidnap of his wife who goes to the american border she gets a motel because she doesn't feel safe in mexico turns out that american motel is owned by the grande family so they essentially take their own staff and kidnap her and uh, plant a bunch of drugs on her, make her look like she's a, a reefer addict uh, as well as heroin, which is really strange that those two things are very similar in this world of the 1950s, is that heroin is as bad as marijuana, um, who ends up becoming arrested for being a, a druggie and overdosing. Uh, during their little collaboration of the Grandes and Hank, uh, Hank becomes an alcoholic, who apparently was an alcoholic before, but now has gone off the wagon and he's starting to drink again. And ends up betraying the grande uncle, uh, I think his name is Joe, and uh, strangles him to death in this apartment with uh, Vargas's wife, uh, framing the wife as a murderer as well as a reefer and heroin addict. So she is arrested, and which sends Vargas into a rage as now he's out to get Hank. He's out to prove that Hank is the bad guy this whole time and uh, ends up teaming up with Hank's partner uh who discovers his cane in vargas's wife's apartment or i guess where he she is found with the dead body of the grande and uh it goes from there into the very end yeah let's uh let's put a pin on it there because there's a lot to talk about there's a lot it comes after that we also have a lot to talk about here and i want to kick us off uh jumping back to that hotel because all kinds of wacky shit happened there. And I want to start with uh, the hotel keeper, the <laughs> nightman. Um, that guy was weird. Anyone, uh, June, you want to take us away on kind of kind of thoughts on this section of the movie, maybe the, the hotel section before we move on to some more bits? So you brought up a good point with that hotel manager. I challenge all of you to come up with one reason why he was necessary in this film. Um, <laughs> that guy was, I don't get it. And he was so over the top. It was like off putting. 
was he there for like 50s audiences to laugh at or something yeah, is he like the the comedic effect is he there to lighten up the scene i feel like he could have just been a regular dude that walked in and was just like hey i'm the night guy no no you're off tonight okay and that was it <laughs> yeah so for a guy who was weird and just seemed super gutless he did not seem at all phased when a bunch of gangsters told him to leave uh, well, keep in mind that this hotel was owned by the Grande family. Yeah, yeah. and he's aware of this. So, b- because in the realm of this podcast, if we haven't seen the movie, it doesn't exist. Up until this point, all 50s movies had very weak female characters uh, mm-hmm. out of the one other 50s movie we've seen. In this one, Susie's kind of a, kind of a strong character, right? She's kind of an odd mix. She stands up for herself. She like, yeah, she definitely doesn't take shit from anybody, and she actually has her own plot line. Yeah, she has an agenda. It just it just doubles back on what I was saying earlier about this movie that really stuck out to me, and I, I just gonna I'm gonna nail this home is that this was beyond its time. It's ahead of all the other '50s movies we've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, this is definitely the most progressive movie we've ever reviewed. To this point, <laughs> I, I think you're definitely right, Mike. I think this definitely um, kind of talks about some issues that would not be out of place today. So, if any of the uh, completely uncreative, uh, empty-headed Hollywood execs who want to remake an old movie are listening to our podcast, here is a pretty obvious candidate. You could forklift the entire thing over and make it today. Fair enough. I won't hit on anymore. But I guess my my the point I'm trying to bring up is: Do you think this movie didn't do as well at the time because it was like that, and now it's starting to become more popular? Like, because we're watching, we're on a 250 uh, IMBD list of popular movies. That is October of 2019, and now it's on there. Like, I feel like that's kind of a a modern day thing. Well, this movie almost quadrupled its budget. So yeah, I don't think there was ever a point where this was unsuccessful. Your point is good, though, in that it has sustained a sense of relevance. Even today, it's, it's on the top 250 on IMDb when a lot of movies from the 50s probably aren't. So it, it, it definitely has staying power. I'm glad you said those statistics. I didn't know how well it did when it came out. So that's good to know that it actually did well in the 50s. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I think, was pretty successful. And, of course, uh, by this point, Orson Welles was pretty pretty known quantity. He's a Pretty well established from scaring the shit out of everyone that the world was ending because Martians were invading. (laughs) One brief other thing I want to point out from this whole hotel segment. Uh, When the gangsters roll up, they're in coupes, two-seater cars, with some guy hanging onto the sides (laughs) of the car, off the back. They're just Mad Max up there. Right, yeah. Like, not only did this foresee the 2019 police state, it foresaw Mad Max. I have to imagine that, like, this wasn't just something that Orson Welles thought up and was like, "This will be really cool. We'll just have a, you know, a Pancho hold on to the sides of the car and roll up." I guess this was a thing people did in the fifties. So, yeah, I wonder. Is it like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I only have two seats. Hang on. Like, we're just going to go to the movies. Go ahead, Billy. Hang on the back." I, was that allowed? Yeah the the third wheel experience in the fifties was pretty rough. <laughs> so I mean. That's like kind of a quintessential like greaser move, right? You get like a kind of a rebel without a cause look. Yeah. Um, 
by you hanging know, just, for dear life. Just huh? like hop, hop in the hop, hop on the car, hop in the car, do whatever you want. Yeah, and uh, I want to point out these these cars are not going slow. They are going. They are hauling ass at yeah. least for the time. Over so everyone road. drives their car like it's stolen in this movie. Like, I'm glad you noticed that that scene where he and the other detective. Or Mike and the detective are driving through the street. Very narrow, like, you know, old-timey streets. People people walking around, and they're going, like, 75. Yeah, and the cop car, like, drifts into a parking space, and they all get out. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Um, the, the end of what Mike just recapped here, where Susan gets uh, framed for the murder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a- another thing that, that kind of got me, like, for a minute there, you know, people legitimately are like, hey, this case is closed. Like, she she did it. You're telling me that this, like, you know, petite woman who is on a heroin, which is a depressant. Well, and marijuana. Two depressants. Yeah. Overpowered this mob boss dude and strangled him and then strung him up or like... Well, no, she strangled him and then laid down in bed. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I've seen the film Reefer Madness, all right? Reefer Madness. (laughs) Okay, someone had to be the first one to say the words Reefer Madness. Yeah, oh, this film, it really dives, like, all of a sudden, like, there's no mention. They just say dope earlier in the film, and then all of a sudden it's like, they were smoking marijuana cigarettes. Oh, my God. Like... The word heroin is not mentioned until nearly the end when they've booked Susie for all of this tomfoolery. <laughs> and so up until that time, uh, people are talking about, yeah, I had to surmise maybe it was, but I, I had no idea. But they were saying, you know, the, the, the gangster through the wall was saying to Susie, do you know what mainlining is? And uh, <laughs> yeah. the uh, mainline the, reaper. The, the vice squad was like, I wouldn't believe it myself if I'd seen the hypodermic and uh like what are they shooting up marijuana what the (laughs) (laughs) and uh when uh grandy comes in and so they've they've brought her to the hotel and they've got like those the the women among the gangsters and uh grandy was like i don't want any of my family getting hooked and they say don't worry we only did it to breathe on her clothes to make them smell is he super worried that they're going to, like, smoke a fat spliff? And and the one guy's, like, tweaking in the background <laughs> on marijuana. <laughs> so for for a long period of the film, I was super confused. Oh, but here's the thing, though, about that. They still consider marijuana as bad as heroin due to the fact that there's a scene where she's in the prison cell. And Vargas is saying they could have shot her up with a many of things that could have made her act this way. And he says, I can smell it on her. Like, you smell the heroin or you smell the marijuana? I think you smell the marijuana. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so the, the climate and the conflict aged well. The, the reefer madness did not age well to 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Seattle. Reefer madness is a real thing. It's, it's real, man. <laughs> the other thing is, like, she is married to a high-profile detective. Yeah, his entire gig is narcotics. Zero history of anything criminal, and she just went straight to mainlining heroin <laughs> and strangling dudes. Um, did we cover when he's sitting in the archives, and then that weird detective who has like 
is it me or does he have like a weird attraction like it, it seems like the relationship is more than just partners like he wants more than partnership i think that you're hitting on a, a classic cop scenario of partners are closer than spouses you know they're partners they've been there with each other for 30 years they've seen some shit he ends up being a pivotal character at the very end he definitely is um Definitely kind of has a change of heart, but that that does kind of bring us to the finale. Take us from this point to the end, Mike. Let's finish this one out. Quick jumping off point. So the end of this movie uh, definitely was difficult to watch for myself. It was was kind of drawn out, uh, mainly because the technology of the 50s was was very difficult to watch and see how it ended up doing this. Uh, He ends up bugging um hank's partner pete and pete wears this bug because he believes that hank is actually a corrupt cop and vargas ends up trying to follow uh pete and hank as they have this drunken discussion pete trying to get hank to admit to these crimes and vargas trying to stay in a 10-foot radius of hank in order to get the correct (laughs) telemetry of this (laughs) this bug that he has on him and here's what he's saying and goes along behind a bridge and gets to the point where Hank actually overhears the radio that Vargas is using to record this conversation as an echo. And Hank becomes aware that Pete is bugged. And uh, we have a show off at the end where, where Hank ends up finding out that Vargas is listening in and uses Vargas's stolen gun, who his wife had in the hotel room, to kill Pete, his partner, um, shoots him in the chest, and then confronts Vargas, who uh, has a standoff at the very end. And and Pete uh, happens to not be dead yet. He comes back alive and, and he does a shot into Hank and kills his idol that he was trying to get to commit to this murders and or not the murders, but it, the evidence that he's been planting for all of these cases throughout the years. Um, goes into the very end where we find out that Sanchez actually admitted to planting the bomb. Hank had been right the whole time, but really Hank had been pushing the evidence in the improper ways and, you know, cutting corners and, Bearing evidence where he shouldn't have been, where he actually was a good detective, but he's just doing it in all the wrong ways. And Vargas and his wife, they leave and they they go back to Mexico to live out the rest of their lives. Yep. And I, I do want to say you can definitely see the uh, the impression that that uh, gunfight scene where Pete, not quite dead yet, kills Hank, the man he respects. You can definitely see that echoed later, almost 50 years later, in that episode of The O.C., yeah, definitely took a lot from Touch of Evil. Oh, yeah. I mean, even beyond just the, the typical trope of you can't remake any movie from before about 1995 because the presence of cell phones will ruin plots of every movie when people can just talk to each other. Um, that bug was big as shit. And I, <laughs> <laughs> that was like a trucker CB radio that uh, Pete tucked in his, his waistline somewhere. Basically, had a boombox on his shoulder and was following them within six inches. Once again, the sneaking in this film is just atrocious. Yeah, he's a he has like this big box that's um that is getting a radio signal from Pete, and he has to follow and stay close enough that he can get a signal. But like we've said, this is like thirty feet away tops. The receiver does not only record, but it plays <laughs> back as it is recording. <laughs> And the other thing, too, is that Pete and uh, Hank are talking so loud. I don't know why 
Vargas doesn't just follow them with a quarter of his own. <laughs> He's never out of earshot of them. That gets me to this. So Vargas has like this big like monologue at the end of like, you know, policing in the right way is supposed to be hard and it's hard to catch criminals, but you have to do it the right way and it shouldn't be easy. Except when you use an illegal wiretap to across a border capture Quinlan illegally confessing to crimes. Like he literally just gave up everything in 10 seconds to this illegal bug. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a, that brings up the whole conversation that really made no sense to me where Pete is trying to get him to admit to, to, to about the cane. He keeps bringing up, tell me about the cane. But he said, he said he had the gun. He even fucking admitted it. That's another point. What kicks this all off? So I'm a big fan of, of crime movies because the majority, like the protagonist through his wit or investigation capability, you know, comes up with like the one thing that's going to put the nail in the coffin, right? Uh This movie, it was just like complete like deus ex machina. Like he's... (laughs) They, he comes across, uh, Mike comes across the, the crime scene. Everyone thinks his wife did it. And instead of, like, you know, him outwitting uh, Hank, he just happens to have left his cane there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is really just the rise and fall of Hank. And we just happen to be along for the ride with Vargas. This whole script is just a testament to how lazy Orson Welles actually is. He's <laughs> paying places... He doesn't want to do investigation, so he just plants evidence. Yeah, the, 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 the madam shows up and says it best. She says, uh, great detective, lousy cop. You know, that's, that sounds good, but I don't know if it means anything, because I feel like a detective is a cop, and if you're a bad <laughs> cop, you're a bad detective. So is the moral just, if you think someone's guilty, they probably are just just skip a few steps and be done with it. No, I think it's the I think it's the opposite. Like you need to do it the right way. And that's you see that you see that again in countless other films and TV shows. Yeah, I think um I mean I think it would have been a much uh more obvious and like pretty pretty overt statement if Sanchez didn't do it the entire time. I guess Orson Welles was going for like a shades of gray kind of thing where yeah, the guy's guilty, but Hank was also wrong. Or Orson Welles writes his movies for the last couple of uh, sentences of his film. He he, all he does is he writes a <laughs> film so he can say some shit at the very end. Like another statement that was said was he was some kind of man. Like this entire movie was made just so somebody could be like, "Great detective, lousy cop." He was some kind of man. That's why they made this movie. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up. The- what is with these older movies and their last line being this like statement of hopelessness and futility? Oh, it's true too now. Yeah, so the killing was uh what's the difference? Mm-hmm. You know, he's the the protagonist is hopeless at that point. And the last line of this movie is like what does it matter what you say about people? You know, like frankly my dear, I don't give a damn. Well, we'll confirm it. We'll keep an eye on it. There's one thing I'd like to bring up just because it's earlier in the film. Um, the fight scene 
where Charleston Heston goes into the bar and is trying to find out where the uh, rockabillies took his girl. Is yeah. it me, or did that set completely fall apart during the fight scene and just no one addressed it? They just let it go? Like, they oh, run yeah. into the bar and it falls over. <laughs> and, the <walls> move. <laughs> and, like... I was like, are they just expecting me to expect that bars just fall apart when people get pushed into them? <laughs> like, well, in 2019, people are always like, well, I don't build them like they used to. <laughs> Meanwhile, Child and Heston is rampaging through a bar, throwing <laughs> greasers into it, and like utterly devastating the thing. It literally falls over. Like The guy stands up on it, and it's wobbling underneath him, so he has to get off. <laughs> Yeah, he like pushes a guy into the bar, and the entire bar, all thirty feet of it, topples. <laughs> all right, well let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about how this movie did. We kind of mentioned earlier this was a eight hundred twenty nine thousand dollar budget, so like three times larger than the killing, and it does seem pretty clear that more work went into it. Brought back a uh, two point two million, so a pretty pretty significant amount. It was a pretty successful has pretty much been regarded as an excellent movie since its, um, since its creation, uh, ranking in all kinds of top lists, uh, winning all kinds of awards when it was created. So definitely very successful. With that said, um, here on Working Title, we like to impose our own ordering on the world. Uh, we don't necessarily trust the folks at IMDb rating these movies, so we rank things ourselves. So of the two movies we've seen so far, uh, where does this go? Uh, ahead of or behind the killing? June, what, what's your ranking? Uh, I think I would rank it ahead of the killing. Um, the killing was very cut and dry, I think. Uh, not a lot of depth, whereas Touch of Evil, there, you know, you had to think about some stuff, and uh, the cinematography was brilliant. So I think cinematically it goes ahead to number one. Yeah. Best movie I've seen. Shane, what's your opinion? Okay, I'm going to go against the grain a little bit. And I think A Touch of Evil is like a better made film for sure. It's it, The cinematography is way better. The acting's really good. Everything's good, but as a movie that I want to watch, I enjoyed The Killing a little bit more. It's a little more to the point. Like Both these movies are to the point, but I like... I was more intrigued by the killing until we tore it apart and it ruined it for me. But uh, I'm going to rank the killing ahead of uh, Touch of Evil. Not saying Touch of Evil is a bad movie. I just, if I'm going to watch something again, I'm going to watch the killing before I watch Touch of Evil. So you're saying as of the two movies you've ever seen, Touch of Evil was the worst? Yes, the worst film that I've ever seen. Wow. (laughs) The killing, the best movie that I've ever seen. Wow. Well, Mike, what do you think? So staying true to uh, how I rank movies, I give this movie a 5 out of 10, which makes it 5 out of 10 movies I haven't seen yet. Um, however, i got to <laughs> say that it's bumped up to 7 out of 10 because of the progressiveness of it. It was very impressive to see this type of a, of a film in the 50s really hit on modern-day topics. Um, that being said, I gave The Killing a 6 out of 10. Still think... The killing is better than Touchy Beetle. So I agree with Shane. Definitely would watch the Touchy, or sorry, the killing again. I really felt like the suspense at the end of that film really felt real and on the edge of my seat. Uh, but a seven out of 10 is what I give the Touchy Beetle. 
Interesting. Personally, I think uh, I think I have to agree with June here. Killing was a fun movie. Um, I enjoyed it, but I think this was the better movie. Um, definitely took a, more work on my end to appreciate, I think, but the better movie overall. I mean, that's great and all, but definitely Mike and I are right and you guys are wrong, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Mike, did you know he was going to rope you into this? And if, Shane, if we, if we learned anything from The Touch of Evil, we need to not judge others by their wrong opinions. Would you say that Touch of Evil has divided us along a line here? Until the next movie, I think we're uh, definitely at odds. Yeah, it seems <laughs> like it. Well, uh, before, we, before we wrap up, let's, uh, let's take it to our simplest question. Yes or no, do you recommend watching it? Mike, what do you think? Um, that's, a, that's a solid no for me. Don't waste your time. It's a little bit boring. I really had to watch it twice to get it. Whereas I watched The Killing once and it was great. So I'm not going to use The Killing as my always go-to, but for now, definitely not worth watching. Interesting. Shane? Wow. Yeah. Um, no, I'd say it's worth a watch. Like, I wasn't, like, bored, per se. There's Trouble in Paradise over there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I would say see this film. It's it's good. The acting's solid. The story's pretty good. Um, you just kind of got to take it with a grain of salt watching it from 2019. June, what do you think? I, I recommend it. Uh, cinematically, it does have a lot of, like I said, little things that you'll kind of see again in later movies. Yeah, I think I'd agree. I'd recommend this movie. This is a good one, and I feel like it is more than just an enjoyable movie. It's uh, an introduction to a whole lot more. Uh, it's definitely kind of an experience. Kind of takes you back in time and kind of shows you the roots of so many things on more than just a plot level, like The Killing did. On like a technical level and a writing and cinematography level, I thought it was pretty good. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Working Title. We've just talked to you about Touch of Evil. Next week, we'll be back with Big Fish, the 2003 Tim Burton film. We're really excited for it. I hope you're really excited for it. We'll see you next time.